Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. You know, I understand what that's like to talk with somebody who is reenacting a trauma from their childhood. And oftentimes when children have experienced wounding and they haven't been supported and they haven't been able to work through it, they will participate in behaviors that reenact the trauma, only this time they're in control. Now, most of the time when they do that, they're in control in that they're perpetrating the behaviors against somebody else. They don't like that they're doing it, but there is some satisfaction in being in control. Sometimes, which is even equally more complex, they will perpetrate the same behaviors against themselves. For instance, I had a woman who was a sex addict, and she had been abused as a child, and so she became very invested in relationships that had a lot of sadomasochistic behaviors. And she would not be able to um, feel sexual arousal or feel satisfaction unless she came home all bruised. What complicated that even further was that she came home black and blue and all bruised, and she had to figure out a way to hide that from her husband. Because that reenacted the trauma she felt as a kid. Because she hid the abuse from teachers, from doctors, from neighbors, and from friends. 
it is a very, very warped experience, but at the same time, oftentimes it gets imprinted very, very young, and it becomes compulsive. And just like other forms of sexual addiction, it's uncontrollable. Until one has the tools to combat this problem, they don't know how to resolve the issue. Now, tonight, we're going to be talking with Jan M. Bergstrom, and she wrote Gifts from a Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self. And she believes that individuals have to heal from their family of origin trauma. You know, so she says getting into recovery um, well, she doesn't actually say this. I say this. I help people get into recovery, and most people, I would say 85% of them, are able to do that easily once they have the tools. And yet, one of the challenges after 6 to 12 months of sobriety is figuring out how to handle the emotions behind the trauma. After all, we know that addictions start to avoid feeling emotions to begin with. And so Jan is going to be talking about how you can reparent all those historical parts of yourself, work through the trauma, and become healthy. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Um, and I know that that can seem very, very complex, but I was also talking with a man today, and he said um, that his fellowship, his 12-step fellowship, was very mad because even though there's not a leader in the 12-step movement, the leader of this specific night had said, you know, guys, you can do all your recovery work, but many of you get stuck, and you get stuck because you haven't done the trauma work or the painful processing of emotional wounding that occurred early on in your life. So you'll want to deal with that too. And I guess the 12-step group, part of the 12-step group, felt very offended because they believed that 12-step work may be enough to... Um, deal with it all. Now, for me, being a clinician and a coach and an educator and an author, what I know to be true is that not one size fits all. And so Patrick Carnes would be the first person to say, hey, you need a committee. You need your 12-step group. You need your sponsor. You need your reading." You need your certified sexual addiction therapist. You need um, recovery tools like journaling, praying, meditating. I mean, he would say it isn't one size fits all. And as a matter of fact, you really have to work diligently on using a whole host of recovery tools to get you healthy. I believe that for sure. 
And so I understand that maybe it seemed like this leader was offending the 12-step movement. But I will often tell people, you know, they'll say, well, I go to my 12-step meeting and I come see you. And I say, that's not enough. You've got to do way more than that. You've got to make many more connections than that. Connection is the antidote for addiction. And that means you have to do the connecting to all the different parts of you that are hurting or that are angry or that are lonely. You know, you get to decide. And you know me. You know what I advocate. I say, oh, the feeling wheel is great, and I love that somebody may have 5,000 different feeling words to help describe how they're feeling. But I keep it simple. Anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, and happiness. Shame and guilt on the side. But when you identify, I was feeling angry, then what ends up transpiring is you're much more able to, A, deal with it, B, figure out what will help you to deal with it, and C, get clear about what you want to do with it. That's my belief. And um, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate people that do EMDR and work on their trauma or people that do somatic experiencing and they get grounded and they resource so that triggers, urges, cravings, all that is not nearly as powerful. Recovery work can be really, really tough, and that's why I really feel for the partners. Because, you know, if you're an addict, you know how you got into this. And you were um, an active participant. You might not have been willing, or maybe you were, but you were an active participant. But a partner gets blindsided. They didn't particularly want to go through this. And so when they're experiencing triggers, oftentimes their therapists say, well, you know what? You've attracted this into your life, and what you need to do is fix yourself. Now, that's not necessarily true at all, not for a partner. Um, A partner didn't attract this into their life. They were duped by a sexual addiction that they didn't even know was happening. Maybe they've got trauma, maybe they don't, but it isn't an automatic sentence of, oh, you had childhood wounding. Just as it is not as an addict. But both Jan and I know that a lot of addicts, a lot of sex addicts do have wounding as a child. They do have family of origin issues they need to heal. So I am excited to hear about her book, Gifts from a Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self, and how she's going to teach people or talk about how to reparent historical parts. So I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation, and I think it will really help you too. So, Jan, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Thank you very much. Yes, and this book sounds fascinating. You've got to tell me a little bit about what made you write the book. (laughs) Well, uh, I've been a therapist for about 24 years now, and about 
Oh, I'd say back in 2003, which was 16 years ago, I started uh, studying with uh, Pia Melody, and and she's at the Meadows, um, where, of course, uh, Patrick Carnes has one of his uh, residential treatment um, facilities there, too. And um, when I started learning her trauma work, she it was called back many years ago when she created it about 40 years ago uh, about codependence. But really what I realized today is that what she's talking about really is uh, childhood developmental trauma and that um, how uh, everyone gets wounded uh, to some degree and um, just how do you start going about healing that. And uh, so after I studied with her for years, I thought, okay, um, I don't know if you've ever read any of her books. I love them, but they're really dense, and I thought, you know, I want to write a book that's just more user-friendly for people, so when they mm -hmm. read it, it feels like it's practical, and they can put it right into practice for themselves, so that's kind of how I decided to write the book, and, um, and that's how the story began two years ago. Wow, and the book really is about the trauma one experiences as a child and then how to to develop that healthy sense of oneself, especially through reparenting, right? Right, exactly. See, because what I noticed is um, I when I started working as a therapist and I started getting um, a lot of, um, well, alcoholics and re recovery and then a lot of couples that were uh, a partner was a sex addict and they were in recovery, um, I, I really realized that, you know, part of the issue um, for many of them is that they've done some good sobriety work. They got into a 12-step program. They've worked with a CSAT, and they've gotten, the, you know, all that straight, and we're doing well. But what was really missing is really learning how to go, like, bottom-up work is what I call it, um, is really starting to understand the patterns of the child and the woundings and why they just um, why they chose to medicate it um, all those feelings um, through either sex addiction, alcohol addiction, and that really what needed to be done is uh, to uh, to go in through a, 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 like I said, Pia's uh, form of trauma work, uh, and to really start growing a healthier functional self to do reparenting, and uh, so that's what. Um, I started doing is that I, I do these family of origin workshops. I've been doing those for about 15 years, and they're really based on uh, the workshop that's at um, the Meadows Survivors Workshop, and uh, and mm -hmm. that really goes into you know really getting the story straight for people, like what really happened to me, what kind of either abuse that I had or what kind of neglect, because pervasive neglect is just as potent as abuse. Um, which is what they're seeing now, and really how do you start going in, getting your story straight, and then finding out these, I think I heard you say historical emotional states, um, historical parts uh, is another way to say it, that keep running these old scripts and how they kind of show up in their life today, and then how to grow a place in myself that can really start going in and intervening, reparenting what wasn't given, and to really kind of grow up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I have been a proponent 
for probably 30 years of some developmental models that say, you know, if you didn't get good parenting as a kid, you have to figure out how to reparent yourself and be kind and offer grace and be compassionate with yourself. And mm-hmm. and yet that's a foreign concept to people that have been abused or neglected. I, I remember when Patrick Karn said to us, he said, you know, don't, don't neglect neglect because neglect is often more insidious and abusive yes. than physical, emotional, or verbal abuse. Yes, because neglect is what you did not get. And abuse is usually known, like when you get slapped in the face or yelled at. But when it comes to neglect, it's what you didn't get. And so many people come in, and I always say it's like carbon monoxide. They feel like uh, lonely, sad, depressed. They're kind of withdrawn, and they say, but, you know, we grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, and I went to school, and my father and parents, you know, they have this story, and they just can't figure out why they feel so miserable or why they have this intense addiction that's been running their life. Like, what is that feeling? And it's really a lot of what they didn't get and starting to learn, like, what is it that I didn't get? What is healthy? What is a healthy functional self? So part of what I do, yeah, yeah, so part of Mm -hmm. what I do is, um, I mean, it's really based, um, I've kind of compiled with my business partner uh, uh, when we do training for therapists and we do actually individual workshops for our clients. Um, A lot of what we're doing is, is we're educating people on what's functional. And the model that we've created, we've included the model that Pia Melody uses, plus a lot of mindfulness uh, like um, and self-compassionate awareness. Like, that's essential. We've talked a lot about attachment and how essential it is for all of us to be attached. And when that doesn't happen when you're a child and growing up as, as a young one, um, it really sets you up for all kinds of emotional problems. And then, of course, the last one is, is, um, is just kind of where it shows up in my body. Like, when I get activated or triggered, like, um, can I feel what's going on in my body? Can I actually name the emotion? So we, we do a lot. All of that has to be <laughs> kind of restructured again once you've actually done, gotten sober. I mean, that one of the things I laugh about is that, you know, so many people think, okay, some, you know, what I realize is underneath all addictions and trying to medicate is to get rid of my feelings. And, and so what we are in the process of reattaching you to your emotions and to your body. Um, and in order to do that, you have to have a functioning self to really do a better job because other than that, or you can get what I call triggered and, and relapse. So it's essential that um, it takes some time to do that, but it's essential, really important work. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now let me ask you, um, what do you consider trauma work? I mean, what would somebody expect if they knew they needed to do trauma work? Mm-hmm. Trauma work is, I mean, a lot of... <laughs> A lot of my clients say to me, why would I ever want to go back there? You know, it was it was miserable. And I laugh and I say, well, what you don't know is going to, excuse me, bite you in the ass. It's going to be driving mm-hmm. the bus. And, um, and so I said, y- you've got to find out what happened to you and get the story straight about whether abuse or neglect 
who did it, what's going on, because it's all it's all underneath there. It's all underneath there, and if it isn't, it's not like you're going to go back and swim around in it and get lost in it. But what you're going to do is you're going to see these certain patterns that have been living with you forever, like you're longing to be connected or to be not lonely, and whenever you try, it doesn't work, and it's because my mother was never there for me. But you keep playing it out in your relationship today with uh, relationships with women um, for a man or a woman where her father never showed up for her. Uh, and he, and so she keeps looking for that person that's going to do it for them today. And these patterns are alive and running our lives. So the purpose for trauma work is to do two things, is to understand the patterns and really intervene with them and change them. And the second thing is, is to all trauma or abuse detaches me from my emotions and my feelings, and they all go underground. And that's an essential part of coming back and being healthy. Okay, so you said they all go underground, and so it's important to bring them out, express the feelings, talk about what were the consequences, and learn how to do it healthier. healthier. Yes, yes. Yes. And and so you call it the healthier functional self. Tell us a little bit yes. about what you see as the healthier functional self. Yeah. The healthier functional self and I, I say this all the time to any of my clients is it's one that's grounded in the body. So we take into account the nervous system. Like Peter Levine is also down at the meadows and He's down there with Patrick Carnes and Pia Melody is there, but a lot of them, as I say, aren't there as often because they've gotten older. But Peter Levine has a whole way of being grounded and centered in your body. So when your nervous system gets activated with a trigger, I'm telling you, your prefrontal cortex goes offline and you're all in a limbic or an emotional brain. And so you have to learn how to regulate yourself that's an essential part of that functioning adult self if you don't if you can't ground yourself you're going to be spinning out and and get triggered and go into reactive behaviors does that make sense oh 100 percent right so that's the the first part is grounded in the body and learning how to know when you're getting activated and learning how to intervene so that you don't just keep spinning out The second one is mindfulness, or what I call self-compassionate awareness, is that I need Mm -hmm. to basically learn how to step back and observe myself without judgment. And that's so hard for so many people because they they look at themselves and they go, oh, I'm so disgusting or I hate this. That does not fit. This is about looking and being compassionate to self-compassionate awareness, looking at myself and realizing what is going on. Oh, no, this is what's going on with me again, and being curious about it, not in judgment. So there's an element of mindfulness in the functioning adult self. The third element that I talk okay, to so people. Okay, so you say be sure. curious about it, and that's the mindfulness, yes. that detaching and observing yourself. Yes, without okay. judgment, though, Carol. <laughs> See, because we're all so busy judging ourselves or condemning ourselves or having this story in our head. And can we just be curious about watching with self-compassion awareness? Like, 
wow, look at all that I'm going through and this is what I'm doing. What is going on? And how can I, you know, be with myself rather than condemning myself? So that's a mm-hmm. really important element. And um, another okay. important so, element, yep. Yeah, I was going to say, so that's mindfulness. And then, you know, you talked about um, doing work from the bottom up. Where yep. does grounding in the body come into play? Is that bottom up or top down? Grounding in the body is just an essential life experience. I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but many people do not spend a lot of time in their bodies. They're, they're mm-hmm. detached from their bodies. Sexual abuse um, and trauma detaches many people from their body. They, they really turn into either detaching from their body or they dissociate. So those are really important things to start but the grounded in the body, um, it's, it's a way of meditating and um, feeling present um, in this moment and feeling like your, your, your nervous system. So the nervous system isn't in hyperdrive. It's not revving, but it really has to do with your heart rate and you slow down. And when we're regulated that way, our nervous system is working very well. And we're not going to be spinning out and being traumatized. And, and what the research is showing is that when someone is triggered, their sympathetic nervous system starts spinning out. The prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning of the brain, goes mm-hmm. offline. Mm-hmm. And we, we become an emotional mess. Uh, we become driven by this emotional brain. And there's not a whole lot of, of really functional thinking going on. So the, that's not even bottom-up or top-down. That's just, uh, to me, that's just essential work to know, like, what's happening in my body. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I always say that that's when the limbic system is driving yeah, the bus. And that's, that's right. why it feels so out of the window of tolerance uh, because exactly. you're either hypervigilant and out. Uh, or you're so depressed you can't function at all. Yes, yes, that is. It's, it's, it's thrown you out of the window of tolerance, and when you're out of the window of tolerance, the prefrontal cortex is not engaged. It's not online. And so if you're going to be functional about your sobriety, you need to be, <laughs> you need to be online, right? If it's being run by the limbic system, that's going to be problematic, right? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. So okay, it's really so, learning so then, how. Yep, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say. So it's really learning what? It's really learning how to know when your body gets triggered and activated, and when that happens, being aware of it again with mindfulness, not judging it, saying, "Oh no, look what I've done." It's like, "Oh, here I go again. How do I take care of myself?" And doing what you need to do, taking a time out from a relationship. Uh, going to see your sponsor, uh, going to see your therapist, going in a room, sitting down, doing a meditation, learning how to ground yourself. Uh, those are all just really essential skills. That's like that's why I say grounded in the body is really important. And then mindfulness is really important. Okay, so I know in your book you talk about the core practices and living right in the middle of those mm-hmm. core practices. So 
can you help to explain the five core practices of healthy living? I love this right. because it's, anybody could use it, but especially people that have yeah. experienced trauma. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. In fact, part of that functioning adult self that I was talking to you about um, has to be living in the middle of these core practices because um, if there, it's not, you're going to be living in an extreme. So let me tell you what the five are. The first one, which and these are right from um, Pia Melody's model, um, which is self-esteem. Um, so what she says is that the nature of all children when we're born on this planet is that we're valuable and that that's what we all have experienced. When we come out, we are um, a, she calls it a sliver of the uh, divine presence of God. That's her belief. Not everyone believes in God, but that's really important to her is that we have value. And so through trauma and through neglect and abuse, people then grow up and they have low self-esteem they have self-esteem issues. They can't love themselves because they've been abused or shamed a lot. And so they, so the first core practice that she talks about is the ability to really start going in, and every time you see that you either go down into shame, that you pull yourself up and you say, I have inherent worth just because I have it, I am. My gifts don't make me better than others, and my shortcomings don't make me less than someone. I have inherent worth, and I'm going to hold myself with warm regard just because I am on this planet. And so it's different. It's not about because of what I have, my attributes, what I've done, my performance, or who I know. It's because I just am. And, you know, that concept for many people is very foreign. They think they have to do something for it. So that's her first well, really foremost. I, I, I was thinking the opposite in, a, in an equally difficult way. I'm thinking about those people that were taught early on to take care of their alcoholic mother or mm-hmm. to soothe the pain of their depressed father. And so their worth has nothing to do with the fact they're, that they're gentle, beautiful creatures and they had worth the minute they were born. It has to do with taking care of. Right, right, right. And and so they, in some ways they're trying to take care of, it depends, they're taking care of others so that they feel like, um, you know, the, that they have value um, or sometimes mm-hmm. they're taking care of a person and it's sucking the life out of them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, but this, Absolutely. this is or both. Yes, for both, right? And when a child grows up in a family where they're shamed or abused or sexually abused, there's the way the information comes into the early brain, and this is what's really important. I have a chart in my book that talks about how trauma is comes into the brain. Your brain is not fully developed until about 22 to 24 years old. So any early trauma from 0 to 10, there's not a lot of developed myelinated brain there. And it comes in as I'm a bad person. I am I am worthless. I am defective. It must be my fault. And so when trauma comes in that way from parents, whether it's neglect or abuse, it, it's going to show up. And, and many of us have a, a sh, a, this whole shame core that keeps 
kind of bubbling up, and it's really hard to feel like we're valuable. So this is where Pia talks about how important the first core issue is, is to start with self-esteem, is that we all have inherent worth just because we are. Yes. And so if I can just say the other side. Woman. Yeah, yes, go ahead. the other side, Carol, of the self-esteem, which is the one down, shame, I'm, I, I'm one down, is the one up. And this mm-hmm. is one thing that I really learned from working with her is that there's the, also the other defect, which is I'm better than most people. And, and, of course, I think you get that with offenders sometimes, that they think they're better than people. Um, they're in the one-up or grandiose position, and that's problematic mm-hmm. too, especially in relationships. Yeah, absolutely, so, 100%. Wow. Yeah, and I thought her work was brilliant, talking, really naming that, because it really talks about it's not just pulling myself up from shame, but the self-esteem practice is bringing myself down from my grandiosity, my judgment, and thinking I'm better than someone. And we all know people walking around like that and relationships where that shows up, and it's offensive. Right. Well, yeah, and let's face it, when you meet those kind of people, if you've got any kind of clinical expertise, you say to yourself, wow, they must have been really wounded to have developed that arrogance, that Mm -hmm. self-confidence that says Mm -hmm. they're better than anybody else. But the average person doesn't know that. They just don't. Now, let me just remind everybody, I am talking with Jan Bergstrom, and she has written a book that is called Gifts from Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self. And she's talking right now about the five core practices of healthy living. So, Jan, I'm going to want you to continue, but I want you to tell people how how they can get your book. Okay. Uh, They can go on Amazon, (laughs) and they Mm -hmm. can order it off of Amazon, and all they have to do is look up either Gifts from a Challenging Childhood or look up Jan Bergstrom. Okay, and then secondly, since a lot of this comes from the foundation of Pia Melody's work, she must be really excited that you've broken it down in even more understandable terms than sometimes she does because she does write very clinically. There is no Mm. doubt about it. Right. Her books are, are very clinical and excellent and dense, and mm-hmm. they were done 40 years ago. <laughs> Facing codependence mm-hmm. was 40 years ago. So this is more, and this, like I said, incorporates more things about mindfulness, about somatic body-based interventions. It, it talks more about, um, uh, like, talking about mindfulness, and, and I also incorporate attachment theory and importance of attaching when you're first born and, and growing up as a child. And I also talk about things like historical reparenting process and how to start doing some of that. So I I added some things in it that I think really help um, kind of round out the book. Yeah, and and modernize it to some extent. And, and again, you do it in in a way that's very easy to understand and would apply to anybody, but certainly anybody who has addictions of any type. So go back to our five core practices, and you were talking about self-esteem or or loving the self. Tell us a little bit about boundaries or protecting the self. Right. 
So one of the, I, I think, out of all the years that I've been a therapist and have looked at books on boundaries, I think that um, the way that Pia Melody explained them, like, changed my life. And it's, it's, not, it's not out there in books except hers. And what I wanted everyone to know is that if you don't have healthy functional boundaries, because kids learn their boundaries system from their parents, which is frightening because most parents don't really know what healthy boundaries are. And it's not just a physical boundary. It's not just a sexual boundary we're talking about, like who can touch me and when and how and whether I want that. It's really what she calls psychological boundaries, or she calls them internal boundaries. And it's a way of really, and I see this in my couples, and especially when I have a couple that's in recovery um, for sex addiction, Boundaries are essential to figure out whose material is this? Who am I looking at? Is this about him or is this about me? And learning how to really decipher that. And she talks about the two parts of an internal boundary. And this is, I think, is cutting edge. I mean, it's been around forever, but it's not everybody talks about it this way. And she talks about the two parts of the internal boundary, which are psychological boundaries, you can't see them, is there's a protective part. So when someone's speaking to me, I'm filtering whether it's true or not true what they're saying. I'm not just porous and letting it all fly into me and getting reactive about it. So there's a protective part. And then there's a containing part, which is like around me that contains my material, and it protects other people from my, my reactivity. And so she talks about how important that is for, she calls the minimum of loving anyone is respect. And using functional boundaries is really about setting up trust and, and respect in a relationship. And I, really, this is, I spend so much time with people about learning healthy boundaries so that when they're with someone, they're not porous. Do you know what I mean by porous? Like everything comes in and they get reactive to it. Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. or it's on the other end is that everything comes in and then they get, they kind of really let everything go and like, you know, blast somebody and it, it's, they're in reactivity and it's coming out too strong. So we talk about both of those is really difficult. They're, we're called boundarylessness. It's not about being protected. So part of what, she, what we're talking about in the functioning adult self is the functioning adult self loves the self through a self-esteem practice. The functioning adult self uses healthy functional boundaries, which help them create a sense of protection around their psyche, around who they are. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And so, obviously, boundaries help people to protect themselves, uh, to assert themselves, and to define what they think is important about themselves. Right, and to define who they are. That leads into knowing themselves. If I don't have a boundary and I'm porous, I'm the same temperature of everything that's going on. And when I put that protective boundary up and I figure out if it's true or not true what someone's saying to me, I, Carol, I'm I'm defining myself. I know who I am. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so then that is that third core practice, reality or knowing the self, right? Right. 
Yes, and so knowing the self. How do you help people figure that out? <laughs> so this is where a lot of uh, addictions, like I said, you know, addictions are mm-hmm. there because they're medicating or, or numbing the pain from childhood trauma. So par- this mm-hmm. is where it gets a little tricky because knowing myself means not just my thoughts. That is just one part of self. It's how I bring information in through my senses. It's what I think about it, how I give it meaning. It's what emotion I attach to it, because every thought, there is an emotion, and how it's in my body. Like, so when you feel fear, you should feel a a rush up in your body. Some people feel it in their chest or their stomach, and and they name it as fear, and the thought is, I'm going to get hit by a car. So that's part of reality or knowing the self means I have to figure out what's going on with me. <laughs> and how I do that is, is exercises that I lead people through about really checking in, like, what's going on with me right now. But this is the tricky part, Carol, because this is where knowing the self, sometimes it is current day self, but there's also historical selves that pop up when we get triggered. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, go ahead and explain it for our, sure. our listening audience that might not. Sure. So historic. So let's say um, my I'm in a relationship and I find out um, my my uh, partner has been having an affair. So I am going. I'm not going to be able to contain myself. I'm going to have a lot of pain that rises up. A lot of anger a lot of fear, my whole body is going to be vibrating and triggered. Now, that's not necessarily just in this moment that's happening, but it's also vibrating some parts of me from when I was younger, like when I was left by my parents or my father. So what I'm saying is that um, part of reality is our current day thinking and how we give meaning to things, but it's also we have also historical parts that get activated when triggers happen. Okay, that does make sense. I get that. So for some people, when they get so activated, they may not understand why, but it's a whole lifetime of activation that they may be feeling. Yes. And so sorting Mm -hmm. through that to understand, and this is what I say to everyone, how old are you feeling? And anywhere between the age of 1 to, let's say, 20, a lot of people say, I'm feeling like I'm 16 or I'm feeling like I'm 6. One guy stood up in my office and said, when my mother walked out on me and never came back. And, you know, he's, he's going through this whole process because he was, he was betrayed. He was abandoned. So part of reality then, and this is where the reparenting piece comes in, is part of what the functioning adult does is it then goes in, remember, through that process of mindfulness that reaches in and gets mindful and with compassionate self-awareness, it affirms, it nurtures and validates and sets limits on that part that is activated, that is up. So reality is a little trickier because it's not just present-day reality and what I'm feeling and thinking and in my body, that when we get triggered, we actually move seamlessly back to the past. And this and is why so trauma really, work is so important. <laughs> this is why trauma work is so important because when you're working with a couple that's in recovery for an addiction, 
that these parts get activated and people become, I mean, they don't actually physically become, but they become like six or eight years old or they become like a teenager and they get sassy and they start getting, you know, um, you know, nasty sometimes. So it's, it's fascinating, but these are parts of us that need reparenting, and part of what that functioning adult does is it goes in with self-compassion, awareness, mindfulness, and it starts reparenting through a process of firming and nurturing and setting limits. Well, and those are all healthy boundaries, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then... <laughs> Looking, looking at that fourth core practice of reality or knowing the self, I'm sorry, the self-care and interdependence, you right. know, I'm all the time telling people, I don't want you to be dependent, and I don't want you to be independent. I want you to mm-hmm. be interdependent because that exactly. means you have a healthy balance of relationships with others versus relationship with yourself. So you said exactly. That's what you like, too. Mm-hmm. And this one is is um, taking care of the self. So part of what trauma does, and this is what's really difficult, mm-hmm. is trauma cuts us off from our needs and wants. Um, and neglect especially does. Because when, um, like, needs are food, shelter, clothing, medical care, dental care, education, you know, those are pretty basic needs. And many people, some people have a neglect there. But where we most of what I'm talking about is emotional neglect. No parent that reaches in to find out what's happening and helping their kids navigate their feelings or what they need or want. They're just too busy telling them to stop that or be, kids are supposed to be seen, not heard. Um, and they're so busy sometimes that their needs and wants for kids, um, they become what we call needless and wantless, or they become uh-huh. too dependent or because no one ever showed up for them, they become anti-dependent and they just take care of themselves. Anything they need themselves, they never ask. So the, there's so mm-hmm. many issues, Carol, with interdependence in in relationships. It it just it's a hornet's nest because sometimes my couples they don't even know. Like a woman knows what to ask for and how to ask for it, and so many times the guy feels like he needs to always be giving whatever he needs to do and he can't say no to her. And it brings up all of our issues from our childhood about whether our needs and wants were met. And so this is about learning how to take care of myself by figuring out what I need and want and learning how to ask for it in a healthy way. And and many people, this is another area which is just so damaged in people with trauma which means we all have trauma, by the way, <laughs> some form of it. Well, you know, I heard you say that at the very beginning of the show, and I was saying something a little bit differently, but I definitely want to support what you say. And mm-hmm. that is, I, I was maintaining that not everybody has had trauma that's sexually addicted. And, and I mean big T trauma. Um, right. But you're right. there's no way you can go through life and not experience some little T traumas at best, Mm -hmm. at best. Right. Um, And so sexual uh, trauma, sexually, uh, of course, sexual abuse and um, even sex addiction um, and all the uh, 11 different types, I mean, are, are, are troubling and pervasive 
and that that causes but like what I was saying many people don't they're using it to medicate some form of their childhood developmental trauma and trauma another word for trauma I use is wounding is we've all been mm. wounded if you look at those five mm-hmm. areas and being valued and being protected by my parents, which is boundaries, and being seen or known by my parents, which a lot of us didn't get, or being taken care of with my needs and wants, because kids are very needy by my parents. We're all wounded in some of the, in all of those areas. I don't think anyone gets off. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Not scot free. Uh uh-uh. uh. Mm-hmm. All right. So then it's important for me to delineate. That last fifth core practice is moderation or balancing the self. Now, what mm-hmm. do you mean by balancing the self? I have, I, I believe that probably has to do with moderation. Yes, it is. It's balancing or moderating the self, containing the self. So it really has to do with not living in the extremes. <laughs> and I think that's just an important practice for being human. You know, uh, is I mean that's kind of like that. What it comes in, it comes in at the very last. That's why it's always the fifth core practice, which is so. Can I find moderation and balance in my life, or am I living like you know, working out for you know three hours every day, or working ninety hours, or you know, living in these extremes is is just really unhealthy in all ways, in our thinking, in our work, and our relationships. And so this just really looks at how can I balance uh, myself? How can I be moderate? Um, because so much of our lives uh, runs into being extreme. And so, again, it, if you're practicing moderation and you're not being extreme or the other end of that continuum if you're not abstaining from everything right you're going to have a more balanced life and and you you teach people in this book how to really nurture themselves by living moderation right yes see because if you live in the extremes you're going to be either um too rigid and tight and shut down or you're going to be too chaotic and extreme and um, it's the other extreme of it. Um, and so we're, as human beings, need to be living in the middle. But really, the moderation piece is essential um, because the two extremes of it are being too tight and the other one is being too, too loose, too, too uh, chaotic. Okay, so now I'm pulling all this together and you've talked to us about reparenting, and I want to know, how do you believe that somebody who works through these things in your book, how might they take their life to the next level and end up feeling better? I mean, how long does this take, and, mm-hmm. you know, what is a healthy emotional life? We know it's moderation for sure, and we know that it's practicing those five core pieces that are so important in the makeup of a healthy, functional human being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so this functioning adult self, as you just said, um, it really you know, takes a good couple of years 
I think, to really feel like you've got some solid grounding, that you've grown and cultivated a part of you that is healthy and that can intervene with some of the old historic patterns and the historic parts. And it, it, by the mere practice, this is what's so amazing, is it's nothing you think about, it's nothing, it's nothing that you keep reading about, it's something that you do, it's a practice. I tell people it's like brushing your teeth, you know, so you use these boundaries when you're with people all the time and you're protecting yourself and you use this reality practice to know what's going on with you and you use this self-care practice to figure out what you need and want and learn how to ask for that. So those are all really healthy practices and they take time. (laughs) And so for most people learning to do, I mean, there's a couple things people can do. They can read the book, they can practice all that's in the book, they can uh, go to uh, the meadows. They can go to therapists like myself and other people on the Healing Trauma Network. It's it's actually a directory of therapists in the United States that have trained um, in this model. Uh, you can also uh, do workshops that are more oriented toward um, helping you get your story straight, helping you really do reparenting and really understanding it well. And so those are available for people. And um, it, like I said, it usually takes, I'd say, a good couple years uh, to be in a healthy practice. And what I notice is that people, really, I, really, I see people who start this with me, and within a year to two years later, they come into my office, and they're operating at such a deeper, more balanced level in their life. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, their, and their recovery, and, and I think that that's one thing I love about this model, uh, Carol, is it goes hand in glove with 12-step programs. You know, for anyone who's who is um, working with a CSAT, uh, it just it goes hand in glove with that, or with AA, it really does, especially this practice of the five core practices. Okay, well we have to wrap up, and I mentioned very quickly that. Some people would say, how long does this kind of work take? And, of course, there's no pat answer. But do you have a guesstimate if people are really going to work on this type of work seriously, reading your book, going to workshops, and working with a therapist that does this kind of work? What do you think, three to five years? Yeah, I think I, I really do, if they're really committed, I think two to three years. Um, if it if it kind of um, they do it in conjunction with other work, I think it, five years is a good estimate. But I, you know, any just think of all the years that you've been living, and then when you take this and you get into this practice, it it really it takes some time. It's not it's not just a you know three month turnaround. That's for sure. Well, Jim Bergstrom, thank you so much for helping us to understand. Um, how to become an, a functional adult self. And I want to reiterate that you wrote this book, Gifts from Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self, can, of course, be found on Amazon. And do you have a website that people can go I do. to and, and check you out? Okay. Yes, it's just janbergstrom.com. <laughs> Excellent. That's easy enough. And, again, for anybody who's listening, that would be Jan. J-A-N, and then B-E-R-G-S-T-R-O-M uh, dot com. And you don't use your middle initial, huh? 
I do not. Okay. Well, thank you well, so Carol, much. Thank now, you. One last question. Sure. One last question. Do you do you offer workshops? I do. I oh, I work so I offer stop. workshops for clients and I also offer workshops for therapists uh, learning this model. So I do both and I have a private practice, so well, it's great because we've got a lot of clinicians that listen to the show. So that's good to know that if they're interested in doing this kind of work and, you know, as I look at it, I work, I train coaches and clinicians um, that work with partners and every single one of these subheadings are things that, you know, the partners that I work with need to learn because they had childhood trauma, most of them, and if they didn't, it certainly was traumatic when they discovered their husband or wife's oh sexual my addiction. Oh, gosh, for so, sure. And what that yeah. does, it's, it's unbelievable. So, well, thank you so much, Carol. I so appreciate this opportunity, and it was great uh, talking to you and to all of your listeners. All right. Well, we appreciate you, too. Make it a good one and keep us posted about other projects, and, and we'll have you on again. Okay, thanks so much, Carol. Have a good evening. Uh-huh. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. So that's Jan Bergstrom, and she um, has written this book, Gifts from a Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self. You know, I eat this stuff up because I really do believe this seems very understandable, and it, it breaks it down into areas that you can really work on and note that you're working on. So, I will talk with you next week. Thanks for listening. I have a lot of well-wishers on my broken back, uh, my L1, L2, and L3, and my four cracked ribs. And I must tell you, I'm sitting back in my recliner like I used to. That's a good thing. And I actually, boy, am I sore. Yes, I'm absolutely sore. But, you know, I can handle pain. It's like... Not being able to handle limitations like bending down and picking up a piece of paper or, uh, you know, getting into a car because you have to turn your whole body. So now I'm doing all that. I'm on the meds. I've been power, well, not power, power walking, but walking pretty doggone fast. And thanks, everybody, for sending me emails and cards. You've been great. Um, I learned a lesson, and that is get ready for your love you if you've done something catastrophic to your body. So we'll catch you back next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And as I always say, there'll only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And I want you to make it a great week.